On this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast, I talk about the life of Charles Morritt, one of the most amazing inventors of illusions who has ever lived. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 39. If you happen to be new to the podcast, uh, my podcast is devoted to magic history. That's the history of conjuring and magicians. I cover mostly the 19th century and 20th century magicians, though I may occasionally go back further in time at some point. If you are a fan of the podcast, please consider giving me a like, a share, and a subscribe if you haven't already done so. If you listen to the podcast on iTunes or the Apple Podcasts uh, app, consider giving me a five-star review. That would be awesome. Uh, and it basically helps out in the search engine ratings and such, so I'd appreciate it. And uh, before I get into today's podcast, I do want to mention I've actually had this podcast, this particular episode planned for several weeks. Um, but then I found out that Jim Steinmeier spoke about this man at the most recent Genie convention. And not only that, but he apparently published some lecture notes on him as well. I was actually going to hold this podcast for a while and order the lecture notes, but then I decided, you know what, I'm just going to pass on the lecture notes uh, for now, for now. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure if I would have heard of Charles Mort, had it not been for Jim Steinmeier, he has spoken about him and written about him in many of his other books. So I think Jim deserves a great deal of credit for keeping Moritz's name alive. I will get the lecture notes at some point. I just didn't get them in time for the podcast. Unlike my previous podcast on Ted Anneman, there's actually a lot of information on Moritz. For whatever reason, uh, biographical information on Ted Anneman was harder to find than I expected. He's absent from many of the magic history books, but more it is suspiciously hidden in plain view. By that I mean he appears in many books, but what's written about him is fairly short. Uh, the man deserves more. So I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Charles Herbert Morritt was born June 13, 1860, in Saxton, Yorkshire, England. His magical inspiration came from reading about the famed Davenport brothers and their famous spirit cabinet. And first, by the way, if you don't know uh, about the Davenport brothers, they were two brothers who jumped upon the new spirit craze started by the Fox sisters in the mid-1800s. Their demonstration of so-called spirit phenomenon included a large wooden cabinet that was raised off the floor by two sawhorses. The Davenports would be tied within the cabinet and then objects and instruments would be placed inside the cabinet as well. The large doors of the cabinet would close and then suddenly bells would ring, tambourines would shake, guitar strings would be strummed, in other words, all manner of noise would come from within the cabinet. But the moment the doors were open, the brothers were seen still to be sitting, still tied up just like before. So clearly, it must have been the work of the spirits who caused these mysteries to take place, right? Well, you'd think so. Uh, the Davenports arrived in England in 1864 when Charles was a mere four years old. 
but their presentations were much talked about and much written about, and their exposures were even more talked about. Chief among the people exposing them was John Neville Maskelin, the magician. He would play a big part in Morritt's life later. But for now, Morritt discovered this when he was about 17 or so, and by the age of 18, he built his own two-hour solo show. And I'm going to go out on a short limb here and suggest he likely had help. I would surmise it was uh, from a book, possibly Professor Hoffman's recently published book, Modern Magic, that played a part in helping this two-hour performance to come about. Modern Magic was published in 1876, and it was only two years later that Morritt would create his long two-hour show. But he also had a mentor, an Englishman by the name of Dobler. This was not Ludwig Dobler, however, because Ludwig was Austrian and apparently did not speak English. This Dobler went by the name of Herr Dobler and was from Bristol. His real name was William George Smith, uh, which I can see now why he changed his name. Uh, he did not use the name Dobler until after the original Dobler had passed away. Morritt gave his first two-hour performance at the Selby Public Hall, featuring the latest magic of the day, mind reading, and a spirit cabinet. The Daily UK Mail says he soon won a job at the City's Varieties Music Hall in Leeds. The paper went on to say within three years he was quite the impresario, having taken over the lease of two theaters and the management of several more in the north of England. While he was moving up in the theater world, he was also quietly working on a new kind of mind-reading act. This act would be almost completely silent, meaning he would speak very little, yet his partner would be able to reveal various thoughts that people were thinking or objects that they were holding. His partner was billed as his sister Lillian, but she was in truth his wife Ada, whose real name was Adelaide Brown Howell. His mind-reading act was a stunner, so much so that he was brought to America to perform. While in America, he picked up a two-month-long engagement at Niblo's Garden in New York City, which was provided for him by Alexander Herman. When he eventually returned to England, he was booked to perform at Egyptian Hall with his silent mind-reading act. And I believe it was here that at Egyptian Hall that he really, his education in magic took a big leap forward. For one, he was introduced to Bautier de Colta, the famous illusionist. And if you'd like to learn more about de Colta, you can listen to Podcast 31. De Colta was one of the most revolutionary illusionists of his day. Probably the hottest of this time is in regards to illusions was De Colta's Vanishing Lady. So popular was this effect that it was ripped off by everyone under the sun. Even newspapers were using the image of the effect in political cartoons. Well, along comes Morit and Neville Maskelin, and in September of 1891, they introduced a new illusion to the world formally titled The Mahatma's Outdone. It was also known as O, which is the letter O, the letter H, and then a big exclamation point. This is one of my favorite illusions, and, and not it's one that you don't see today. Um, I remember reading about it, and I remember seeing a number of uh, hit magic history books that had posters for it, and I was fascinated by the effect, but it wasn't until I saw a video of Paul Daniels performing the effect that I was able to actually see it performed, and I think it's simply brilliant. 
It's essentially a vanishing lady presented under challenge conditions. Each step along the way is designed to prove the lady cannot move or leave without the spectators being aware. And that's the great part. This illusion involves several people from the audience actually taking part. And here's what you would see. There's a, a chair uh, upon the stage. Around it, a curtain cabinet made up of four upright poles, which keep the curtain pulled up high um, above the height of the chair so that you can see everything for at the start. The magician's assistant comes in and she sits on the chair, Two or three spectators are brought up on stage to help. They cl can clearly see the woman is sitting in the chair. They can see all the way around. There is a ring on a rope uh, that's pointed out, and the woman grabs one end of the ring, and then it's threaded over the top of the curtain, and a spectator is in instructed to hold the other end. And if the spectator keeps a little bit of tension on the rope, the woman can pull the ring up and down, back and forth, and the spectator will feel this uh, movement and feel the emotion. And that's one way that they know that the person inside this uh, curtain cabinet is still there. Next, the, the curtain is dropped to the floor, so it covers the entire prop. The assistant that's sitting in the chair then pushes her arm, her, actually her hand, through a little hole in the curtain, and another spectator is asked to hold her hand. So basically, she's trapped at this point. One hand holding the ring, the other hand being held by a spectator. If she moves, they'll know. Next, the curtain is raised up uh, uh, from the bottom about a foot so that a steel plate can be slid underneath the chair. This would eliminate the notion of a trap door being used. The curtain is lowered again. The magician yells, go! And the curtain now drops to the floor. The woman is gone. The two spectators on stage are not stooges, meaning they're not part of the show. They're not with the show. They are just as dumbfounded as everyone. It's a wonderful illusion. and In fact, it's so great that I must mention another name, Harry Keller. Within a few months of the debut of this amazing illusion at Egyptian Hall, Harry Keller was presenting it in America. If you'd like to learn more about Harry Keller, you can check out three podcasts, uh, number eight, number nine, and number 10. Harry Keller was in England in 1891, and he met with Charles Moritz. He actually purchased the rights to use Moritz's mind-reading effect, and it's likely he also purchased the rights to O, and one other illusion as well that I'll talk about in a minute. Keller combined the methods of several mind-reading acts together, along with Moritz's uh, methods, to create his own very clever mind-reading turn in his own show. One of the other people, by the way, that he purchased the secrets of their act from was Haiti Heller, the partner to the famous and recently deceased Robert Heller. And again, if you'd like to learn more about Heller, please check out podcast number 14. Now, the other illusion I mentioned is yet another one of my favorites. I have this vague recollection of seeing this illusion as a child, but despite my best efforts, I, I can't find anyone who has done this illusion in ages, so I'm, I'm not sure where I saw it. Maybe it was a movie. I don't know. Um, the illusion was called Flido, and like Decolta's Vanishing Lady, it was an extremely popular effect during its time. Now, Oddly, from a couple sources, I, I found out that the basic effect is the same as one created by Chevalier Ernest Thorne, with only slight variations. I know 
practically nothing. Actually, no, not practically. No, I know nothing of Thorne. So <laughs> he's going to be the topic of a future podcast, guaranteed. Now, the effect of Flyto begins with two vertical latticework cabinets. In Moritz's version, the cabinets were six-sided and had legs that raised them up about a foot off the stage floor so you could see underneath at all times. In the first phase of the routine, an assistant is placed in one, in, in one of the cabinets. The doors uh, had roller blinds on the inside so that they could be pulled down to obstruct the view of the person inside. The blinds would be pulled down, and at the magician's command, the blinds suddenly flew back up revealing that the woman was gone, and in her place a gentleman stood. The woman then suddenly came running down from the back of the audience. Pretty amazing. Next, the first cage that had been used was raised up by ropes off the ground several feet in the air. The blinds again were pulled down, and the doors closed. It was clearly empty. The assistant now stepped into the other cage, the female assistant, into the other cage, and the blinds were pulled and the doors were closed. In an instant, the blinds flew back up, revealing the woman was gone, and then the blinds flew up on the raised cage, and there she was inside that cage that had been suspended high over the stage. The year was now 1893. Morit had more illusions to present. His next was a big prop he called the Convict's Escape, but it was known better by the name the Morit Cage. And before I share the effect, I'd like to share a story which comes from the pages of The Wizard, which was an English periodical that was published by P.T. Selbert. In the pages, Selbit tells a story from his youth when Charles Morritt rented the basement of a silversmith's shop to build and rehearse a new illusion, which turned out to be the Morit Cage. Well, it just so happened that P.T. Selbit, a young P.T. Selbit, lived in the same building and in his youth learned that a well-known magician was building something in the basement. So Selbit figured out how to pick the lock on the door and would go down and he would look at this amazing prop. When Selbit eventually saw the illusion performed, he was amazed and he had a tinge of pride because, well, he, he had the opportunity to study it before anybody ever saw it. Though in truth, his conscience got the best of him, and he eventually confessed to his transgressions in the pages of The Wizard. The effect of the Morit Cage was a large raised platform with bars along the back and the two sides. Then, in the center of this platform was another smaller cage with bars on all four sides. You could clearly see all the way over, under, through the bars, beneath the platform. You could see everywhere. There was just It was just big open space, basically, besides the bars. A small curtain was raised around the inner cage, and even though it was covered... The area surrounding the cage was open and clear. Yet, somehow, a person appeared inside this small cage after the curtain had been lowered. And it happened again. And again. It was visually impossible. There was no way for a person to sneak in from above or below, and the sides were in view of the whole time. Yet, several people were produced from Moritz's cage. A Keller would go on to perform this effect in America, and in the modern age, Doug Henning, on his 1978 TV special, brought back a version of the Morit Cage illusion for his World of Magic special with 
uh, with, uh, who's that? Uh, Brooke Shields and Tom Bosley. At one time, the special was posted on YouTube, but try as I might, I can't seem to locate it because I would love to put a link on there so you could see the Mort Cage for yourself because it is just a really amazing illusion. Now, consider this. I have described to you three unbelievable illusions all produced over 100 years ago, all immensely popular in their day, and none of which is performed today, all basically forgotten by modern performers. Somewhere near the turn of the century, it appears his first wife, Adelaide, also known as Lillian, leaves him to become an artist in Blackpool, but he soon finds a new companion who becomes wife number two. Her name was Sarah Elizabeth McIntyre, and she was 20 years younger than him. She, too, becomes part of the show and performs under the name Bessie. Now, if you think Morit was only interested in illusions, you'd be wrong. In an issue of The Magic Wand, in a column by Professor Hoffman titled Some Useful Card Slights, he mentions a color-changing card effect that he credited to Charles Morit. And he was also known to feature an unusual coin trick in his show, a transposition of coins and purses. The slight that's used in that particular effect was an original coin slight uh, created by Charles Mort. For my magic friends, a version of this can be found in Jim Steinmeier's excellent book on stage magic called The Conjuring Anthology. So you might want to check that out. Now... If sleight of hand and illusions weren't enough, Charles Mort also featured hypnotism and used it to gain publicity. Now, more on that later. There's a funny and revealing story related in the pages of Magic, a pictorial history of conjurers in the theater by David Price. Mr. Price shares the story of Charles Mort appearing at St. George's Hall and preparing to present David DeVance effect called ABC Fly. This was a clever piece that featured an educated insect. There was a board with letters uh, on it, and then words were selected by members of the audience, and then this fly would be placed on the board, and it would move to the different letters, and it would spell out you know, the various words. Well, on this particular night, Charles Morritt opens up the small box, and he removes the little fly, and he goes to set it on the board, and it falls on the floor and he picks it up and it fell down again and again and according to the book the exasperated Morit admonished the fly in words that shocked the customers of St. George's Hall the year was 1912 but if we rewind time a bit and look at the previous six years or so we find that Morit was all but forgotten by the magic world, partly due to a schedule that took him far from London and partly due to a drinking problem he had developed. And given this fit with the ABC fly trick, it seems he was still drinking. It's in this time that Morit creates one of his most brilliant effects, the vanishing donkey. I believe that the this was totally forgotten over time. And thanks again I mentioned this man, the diligent detective work of Jim Steinmeier. He rediscovered Moritz's methods, uh, which was yet another unorthodox twist to an existing method, but one that was a real stunner. The basic effect uh, is very understandable to audiences. The magician is going to attempt to make a donkey 
disappear. Now, donkeys are well known to be very uncooperative animals. So the whole idea of making a donkey vanish seems virtually impossible. In effect, a small, well, I guess you'd say donkey-sized cabinet was seen on the stage. It had doors in the front, so it could be open to show the insides. And the audience actually could see clear through the box to a uh, like a circular backdrop uh, behind it. The front doors were closed and a ramp was put in place and the donkey was then introduced and somehow coaxed to climb up the ramp and step into the cabinet. Quite rapidly, the box was then opened to show the animal was gone. Uh, there's a lot more to the vanishing donkey. Uh, the behind-the-scenes research and the eventual recreation of the illusion is covered in an issue of Magic Magazine and later in the book Art and Artifice by uh, Jim Steinmeier. The new booklet that I mentioned, which is called, what is it called? It's called Lost Moret, also by Jim, likely describes the donkey and probably uh, a lot more. So, uh, and all of these, all of these books that I mentioned by Jim Steinmeier, uh, all available through his website, jimsteinmeier.com. I found both the detective work and the recreation of The Vanishing Donkey to be highly fascinating, but then I stumbled upon a statement in the book uh, Magic by David Price. One of Moritz's greatest illusions produced during this time was his Vanishing Donkey, later used by Thurston. However, the most remarkable illusion of Moritz's career was one he called Tally Ho, in which an entire fox hunt was produced on a lighted stage from a small cabinet. He then goes on to suggest that the method was the Moritz cage. However, I don't think this is accurate. I don't think you could produce a horse, a rider, two huntsmen with rifles, and a hunting dog using the Moritz cage. So, uh, I think this particular illusion, Tally Ho, if I'm not mistaken, this one may be lost to time. But wow, what an illusion, huh? Now, as all this is going on, Moritz meets an American named Harry Houdini. And it was Charles Moritz who sold Houdini an effect that would go on to become one of Houdini's most famous and, like many of Moritz's previous illusions, an almost forgotten effect. He sold Houdini the rights and method to the vanishing elephant. Harry Houdini would be the first magician in history to make an elephant disappear. He debuted the illusion on January 7, 1918 at the Hippodrome Theater in New York City. It was part of a review show called Cheer Up. Houdini was borrowing an elephant from the troupe of elephants already featured in the review show. Here's a description of the effect from a January 8, 1918 article from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. Houdini has a score of stagehands drag out onto the stage a big wooden cabinet, having a tube-like interior seemingly about big enough to hold a 10,000-pound elephant. Curtains at the front and doors at the rear are open to give a clear view through the tube right to the backdrop. Into this tube, the elephant marches. The cabinet, having been pulled around so that one side faces the audience, the curtains, boom, thrown back, show the cabinet to be empty. The program says that the elephant vanished into thin air. That explanation is as good as any. The trick is performed 15 feet from the backdrop, and the cabinet is slightly elevated. That sounds like a pretty remarkable mystery. 
the magic world, though, was divided. Some of those who viewed it said uh, they couldn't really see anything. And this was due to the fact that the illusion was only good if you were sitting basically directly in front of the very large box. The rest of the audience had to take it for granted that the animal had vanished. And there is one interesting recollection by Leslie Guest, who said that upon seeing it the first time, and I quote, the first time I was completely baffled. Though, upon seeing it a second time, he began to work out possible explanations for the effect, which is often true of, you know, of any second viewing of seeing a trick. Now, despite the controversy, Houdini's Vanishing Elephant would go down in history as one of his most popular, though the true method behind this effect is still uncertain. There are theories, and many of them make good sense. Some are based already on existing techniques that were used by Moritz, so I'd, I'd say it's quite likely magic historians are on the right path. This was not the only Moritz illusion that Houdini would purchase, however. He also purchased a clever effect called Goodbye Winter and another called Hello Summer. In addition, he purchased the rights for the Vanishing Donkey, the Lady Godiva illusion, and an illusion called Black and White. Uh, let's begin to break these down. The following description of Goodbye Winter comes from the pages of the Sphinx magazine, May 1922. On an otherwise bare stage are seen three tables of such size as to form a sort of pyramid. The uppermost table was covered with a white sheet. Then a high stepladder was brought out and set at one side of the pyramid table. A young lady named Miss Winter was introduced, and the young lady ascended the ladder, and when reaching the top, stepped under the uppermost sheet-covered table. She was then commanded to vanish by the words, Goodbye, Winter, and as soon as the sheet was whisked away, the girl was found to have mysteriously disappeared. Hello Summer is a bit different. Today, uh, it would be termed a box trick, but back then, there was no such name for these things. It was a clever illusion, and again, I will rely upon the Sphinx to give us a description. The curtain rises, and upon an unprepared trestle is seen an elongated pyramidical box. This is laid upon one of its sides to show its emptiness, after which it is tilted back to its original position. With a long stick, Houdini shows the absence of mirrors, and etc., underneath the raised platform. Now, from the flies, there is lowered a thin cable, which is attached to a loose cover that rests upon the top of the box. A pistol is shot. The magic words, Welcome Summer, instantaneously bring forth from the pyramid, Mist Summer, radiant and beautiful, with garlands of flowers entwined around her body. And to clarify a few points, uh, the box was not an actual pyramid. It was more like a tall pyramid shape with, with no like point on the top. The appearance of the woman came from pulling a, that cable that would lowered. Uh, well, she came out from the top of the box holding onto the cable. So that is uh, that was the appearance on that. This particular illusion was captured, there's a photo of it, uh, in the book Houdini, His Legend and His Magic by Doug Henning and Charles Reynolds. On page 123 of the book, the large box used in Hello Summer uh, can be seen on the far right-hand side of the page. And as far as I know, there are no images of Houdini actually performing 
this illusion or the previous one, at least not that I'm aware of. The Lady Godiva illusion was the vanish of a pony and a rider, and it was apparently different from the vanishing donkey, but I don't have any other information on it, so I, I can't really comment further on that. And then the black and white illusion is another one that I, I, I'm just not certain of. I There's a lot of illusions called the black and white illusion over time, and I don't know, uh, they don't sound like anything more would have done, so I, I don't know what this was. However, I did discover that the sketches of Moritz black and white illusion were sold at auction for $10,000 back in 2014, so there are sketches of this particular illusion out there. As the years went by, drinking and bad luck plagued Charles Moritz. He went back to his hypnosis act with his wife performing a lightning calculation act. This is essentially, by the way, a mathematical act where the person can do various calculations at lightning speed. And it may not sound like much, but I'll tell you, I have seen several people do a uh, lightning calculation act, and it's really impressive. Now we get to the year 1927, and Charles Moritz is booked to work at Halifax's Victoria Hall for about a week-long engagement. And as was his custom to drum up publicity for his appearances, he presented a piece that he called The Man in the Trance. And a man from the audience was chosen to be put into a trance that would last all week long. He'd be then placed into a casket or a coffin, and this would be put under uh, in a room underneath the stage. And people were welcome to come and visit and check out the hypnotized man for themselves throughout the week. On Friday, a huge collection was taken up for the man and his family by the 2,600 people who attended the performance. The man was woken up and all seemed fine. Well, it sounds okay so far, but there was a glitch. A short time later, Moritz was arrested, being accused of fraud. The case went to court, and shortly after it began, Moritz became ill and had to go to the hospital. And he was in a very bad way at this point, no money, serious health issues, and facing imprisonment. And he begged and pleaded with friends for enough money to survive. When he was finally able to get around, the case again went back to court. The hypnotized man testified that he was only really asleep for the first few minutes, the rest of the time, he stayed in that room and he ate and drank as he wanted. And whenever somebody would come by, he would jump back in the casket and pretend to, uh, to be asleep. He played his part pretty well. Apparently, the case had been brought by someone at the Victoria Hall who tried to blackmail Morit for some of the collected money. Eventually, though, the case was dismissed. Charles Morit, however, never returned to the stage after this. He was a broken man. It was up to his wife Bessie to support them, and she did so by telling fortunes. Though eventually, even she had had enough. Moritz was put into the Chorley Isolation Hospital for tuberculosis and abandoned by his wife. He died there in the hospital in Lancashire, England, April 19, 1936. And with that, I say... Wow, what an amazing inventor, what a tragic life, what a sad ending. I think what's most remarkable about Moritz is that none of his illusions are performed today, and they were all really amazing illusions, but uh, perhaps maybe not so practical for 
modern days is everybody wants pack flat, play big, you know, that's the culture today. If you're looking for illusions that are different from what everybody else is doing, look to Morit for some mind-boggling treasures. And that, my friends, is podcast number 39. And it may be, may be the final podcast for the year. I don't know if I can squeeze another one out or not. I can tell you the next podcast in the uh, in the docket is a podcast on Eugene Laurent, but I don't have it finished yet. It may be. It may be out in time, but otherwise it'll be the first one for 2020. I do want to mention one other thing that's uh, just a little personal thing. I have a website called artistofmystery.com, and on that website I have uh, all my artwork, my paintings. I, Besides performing magic and doing this podcast, I also uh, am a painter, and I've painted over the years a number of magicians, that can be seen on the uh, on that website artistmystery.com and uh, I'm selling some of the paintings so if you want to go over there and check out artistmystery.com and just click the link for paintings and then click I think there's another link for magic paintings cuz there's other kinds on there as well um look through them see if there's one you like um contact me just send me an email info at carnegiemagic.com and uh, just let me know you're interested in one of the paintings, whichever one it is. They're, they're not cheap, but they're not super expensive either. And uh, I can even send you a price list if you, if you like. Um, not all of them that are on there are available, I'll tell you that. There are quite a few that are in private collections. And there are a couple that I have kept for myself. But um, trying to thin out the herd because I've got a... Uh, I have to move. I'm moving to a different state, and it's one less thing I've got to travel with if I can sell some of this artwork. And then when I get to my new location, I can start painting all over again. Um, I do not offer prints of any of these, just so you know. So these are all original pieces. And um, again, if you're interested, you're looking for a unique gift for the holidays, maybe that would be something you'd like. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. And if you did, please remember to like and share the podcast with others. Until next time, I'm Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Be safe and be well.